Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I want to go to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to begin by reading the first two verses, and then we'll go from there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. Today I want to begin a series entitled Genesis, Providence, Purpose, and Perspective with you. It'll be a study of the book. It'll take us about 18 months or so to complete. And we're not going to try to do all of it, but I want to introduce it to you because I want you to see where we are going in this series. If you're in a community group, you're in a 12-week series of an overview of the book of Genesis. So in about two weeks from today, you'll actually launch out and continue your overview of the whole book. And we'll be uh, working through some of the first chapters of the book. But I wanted you to do that in community group because I want you to see the whole picture. I want you to see the forest as we dial in and look at some of the particular trees within the study. So if you're not in a community group, today is a great day to get in a community group. If you'll just come here at 5, we'll have some meeting here before night of worship, and we'll help you get connected. Or you can connect immediately in the North Community Room or South Community Room by taking one of the little cards, and, and we'll introduce you to leaders. That commercial is over. Everyone asks three big questions about life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I headed? Sometimes that last one sounds more like, what in the world is going on? (laughs) Have you ever asked that question? You see, the answers that we derive from these questions form what we call a worldview. Our understanding of self, our understanding of a God or, or divine being or spirit or power or however you refer to it. Our understanding of other people, our understanding of daily life and the world and how things work. And so where we search becomes of utmost importance for our life in the answering of these questions. That first question, where did I come from, is a question of providence. It is a question that aims to get at the origin and the design for life. That second question, why am I here, is a question of purpose. We want to know why we are alive on this earth at this time, even in this place in which I find myself. And the third question is one of perspective. Where am I headed How is it that we can view the world in order to interpret it and find meaning for our life here and now? All of life is either a pursuit to answer these questions or a living out our understanding because of the answer we believe we have found to these questions. And in the Bible, God speaks to each of these. His answer to us is the glory of the beginning for all things. His story 
narrates and shares the purpose for every life that is on the earth. And his power brings to us understanding and meaning, not only to the big perspective of all of life, but to the mundane daily details in which we walk with him and he with us. The Bible tells us, friends, that we were created by him, we were created for him and we were created through him and only in him will we ever find true life the answer for which we long augustine theologian of the third century is quoted as saying because you have made us for yourself our hearts are restless until they find rest in you genesis is the revelation of beginnings. It is God's invitation into a personal relationship with Him. It is the story of provenance, of our origin, of our purpose, and of our perspective. And it was presented originally to the children of Israel just before they crossed into the, or at, at Mount Sinai, just before they were to receive the law and, and uh, move forward as God's people under God's revealed word. And so it has for us in its structure two main sections. We'll look this fall at verses or chapters rather 1 through 11 of Genesis. This is what is known as primeval history. It is you it is unique. I'm going to be able to talk hopefully by the end of the sermon. It is unique to the scriptures because of the time with which it covers And then there is the patriarchal history, chapters 12 through 50, the remainder of the book of Genesis. Interestingly enough, chapters 1 through 11 covers a greater period of time than the whole rest of the Bible combined. I find that very interesting. Surely it means that it is critically important for us. In these verses, God reveals himself as creator of all who establishes for us our identity, who grants to us our purpose, and who gives to us meaning for all of life. Today I want to begin by looking at the beginning of all. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Here's what I want you to see today as you walk away. That God reveals himself as creator of all to show himself as the source of eternal life in Jesus Christ. There's a reason God has done all that he's done. And he is pointing us to that purpose, that divine Glory. Now, there are two challenges that immediately confront us with Genesis that have arisen and developed over the ages. As a matter of fact, there are many challenges that have arisen against the Bible. 
And if we're going to begin a study of this nature, and maybe most critically so with the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings literally is what that word means, then we must begin with our doctrine of Scripture. What is it that we believe about the Bible? Let's bring our presuppositions to the forefront so we can understand where we're headed as we begin this study. And our doctrine of Scripture provides a foundation from which we can study the whole of Scripture. And our doctrine of Scripture tells us that we believe the Bible is inerrant for the purposes of God in its written form given to us, that it doesn't mean that there aren't other fields that will find places where they disagree with it. What it means is, for the purpose for which it was written, it is without error. It is authoritative for our life. Yes, even the book of Genesis. That's a great challenge in the world today, that the word of God in Genesis is a revelation of God, and it holds authority for our life today. It's applicable to us, and ultimately it is sufficient for us. In other words, the revelation that we have in God's Word is not lacking in what we need for life and eternal life with God. That becomes a foundation for us to begin our study today. But I want us to deal specifically with Genesis and two questions that arise when you're uh, studying this book. The first one is this, can we believe Genesis? And secondly, should we trust Genesis? These uh, kind of organize these uh, challenges that confront us. Now, we don't have any time for a full scope of the evidence to present, but what I do plan to do in the preceding or the weeks that follow, uh, rather the proceeding weeks, not the preceding weeks, is to provide resources from my sermon, both in my manuscript, which will be placed on the blog, and also I'll provide a full bibliography of the resources that I'm using and kind of where they speak most appropriately to in the study, so that if you want to do greater study and read the experts, you're free to do that as well, to be provided for you to do that. Challenge number one, can we believe Genesis? I think it's a legitimate question. It's one we should all pose. This really points us to a literal or literary and historical consideration. Are, uh, is Genesis a literary work and a historical work that we can believe in? As literature, Genesis can be read and believed. The critics have said that it is a, a body of literature that, like myth or mythology, should only be used as fiction, not true. Not something we should actually believe to be true. But the purpose of the author, the one who wrote it, should most accurately inform and guide how it is that we approach a body of literature, any literature. And what we see in Genesis is that the author Moses, the divine author God, the human author Moses, presents this not as myth, not as legend, not as something just to be enjoyed. Surely you can enjoy it and, and be inspired by it, but something to be believed. For what Moses was doing was writing an introduction to the children of Israel to tell them, this is where you came from, this is why you are here, this is what's about to take place. As they waited at the foot of Mount Sinai, God would bring his covenant to his people, and Moses wanted to introduce them 
to that. Now, as a body of literature, we can study it, study it critically that way as well. Genesis divides into 10 sections that are formed by what they call toledotes. Toledot is just the word that simply means these are the generations of. And what Genesis does in its literary structure and forms is it follows individuals that God uses to show how he is creating and sovereignly forming, bringing about his will to form a people for his own purposes. And so there are 10 of those generations throughout the scripture of Genesis that he uses It is the origins of a people who met God at Sinai. And its central concern is the covenant that God is establishing with his people. From creation to divine revelation that God will bring about in his law, Genesis reveals God's sovereign work in order to establish these people as his own People. Have you ever asked the question, how did I get here? Where is it that I am from? Even a child will say, Mom, Dad, where did I come from? Where did this all start? Why? Because that wondering is so deeply woven within us that we, we long deeply to know our origin, where it is that we have come from. And these are the questions that Moses addresses for God's people in the book of Genesis. And he does so from a literary uh, or literature critique perspective with a strong form. That Genesis is not just an okay book. He's not like the recent commercial where the guy goes in to the mechanic shop and says, hey, y'all do brakes, right? And he went, oh, we're okay, right? Moses didn't just give us something that's, ah, spiritually, it's okay. No. He's provided something here that has a form and a structure that from a literary perspective is not just beautiful, but it's commanding of our attention. It's developed So often we dismiss those ancients of old because, well, they didn't know everything we know today. And yet that's not true here. The the literary argument naturally leads to the historical as well. Is Genesis real history? Now, on a couple of occasions today, in order to make brief and concise, which I know we can all appreciate that, right? I want to lean on the experts. Genesis has been scrutinized and often dismissed only as myth or only as legend. But Genesis has a unique form of history, specifically the first 11 chapters. It's primeval history that explains a very uniqueness about it. Listen to what one scholar says. It is a history of a particular kind. Scripture was never intended to be a mere chronicle of events or a biography of a nation. It is not oblivious to the historical process. However, the Pentateuch deals with primeval history, the times of the patriarchs, and the gradual incubation of national consciousness among a people unused to independence. In other words, he's saying for 400 years these people had lived in slavery in Egypt. And so it's introducing them to something that goes beyond just the generations that came before them that were enslaved. He continues, this special kind of history shows that the Old Testament's worldview transcends the historian's plane. It is not history for history's sake, but records of past events 
for the purpose of educating people spiritually. It presents a theological view of history, interpreting with a divine cause as well as a human one. Friends, listen, Genesis records the sovereign God of the universe creating and accomplishing his will to form a people for himself. It does exactly what it was appointed and aiming, purposed to do. It is neither myth nor is it legend. It is divinely purposed historical records. And the stories that it tells, the narratives that it records were selected and they were interpreted theologically in order to teach a covenant faith. That God chose his people through Abraham and he entered into a covenant with them. Genesis uses this whole theme as the central point of its interest in recording historical events to point people to a sovereign creator. The most convincing evidence that we can use in its history is to consider how those who most closely associate it with it, how they considered it themselves. When we look in the New Testament and we consider the New Testament authors, we see that over 250 times Genesis is cited by New Testament authors and not once did they consider it anything other than factual historical record. Genesis is the historical introduction to God's covenant with his people. And because we as Christians live in this covenant with God, it recites for us God's covenant to us. This, friends, is the first challenge. Can we believe Genesis? Yes. Yes, we can. The evidence is clear. You can trust Genesis. But this leads us to the second challenge, and that is simply this. Surely it's a greater challenge that's arisen over the last century. Should we trust Genesis? We can believe it, but should we trust it? That's where we're aiming at with this challenge. Some claim that science disproves the Bible, and they specifically claim that it disproves the teachings of creation in Genesis, the earliest parts of Genesis. But hear me, I'm going to make some big claims this morning. True science proves just the opposite from what many claim. Evolution is the advancement of scientific theory originally developed by a man by the name of Charles Darwin. This is not something I need to introduce It's as common today as any ideology in the world. Many have embraced his theory and have advanced them for their own causes. Let me be very simplistic in my uh, relaying of the evolutionary formula to you when I say that evolution basically says that nobody times nothing equals everything. Sounds absolutely absurd, does it not? Actually, I want it to just a little bit. I want it to. But in today's world, to even question evolution, the academic elitist will tell us is professional suicide. It's to be completely dismissed. It is an intellectual offense. Science proves that evolution is not simply bad theory. 
But listen, the very discipline of science, molecular biology, upon which evolutionary theory is based, is the very discipline that disproves it in fact and true science. Stay with me. Because you may be asking, Pastor, isn't this just your opinion? I mean, we're not surprised that you wouldn't buy into it. Obviously, you've got skin in the game to oppose it. It's far more than my opinion, friends. It's my position, and I'm sticking to it. But I want you to know why. It's not because I'm just being hard-headed. There's plenty of that in my life. I don't want you to take my word for it. I'm not a scientist. But I do have to ask this. And with deep passion, I have to ask this. Why is it that one would accept and one would listen to what today would call a brilliant scientist littered with letters after and before, above and below their name, who would use their academic elitist bigotry to guard such a position as evolution and pronounce it as fact when in fact it is not. You don't have to believe me today speaking about a field that I don't know a whole lot about and my education is not in that field. But I will challenge you for those who operate only in this field, who hold the academic elitist bigotry in this field, who will tell you this is presuppositional fact and you can't question it. You should not listen to them. You should dismiss them. They are imposing their platform of their bigotry and they are bullying the younger generation of our day. The first 20 minutes of my son's first college science class was a rambling of intellectual ignorance about the wrongness of the Bible. And all that does is prove the bigotry of the one spouting it. Why is this important? Because we have lost generations to this stupid ideology that is based in senselessness that has no bearing. And yet even as I preach on it today, I know I'm working against many of you who've accepted it as presuppositional truth and you've moved on. It's not even something you wrestle with anymore. You've just accepted it as fact and you believe it to be true and we just have to kind of figure out when the tension of the Bible rises against it. I'm telling you, it's not true because it denies God. And that's my point to make to you today. Evolution is deception of the modern intellect. It is stripping of human value and dignity by denying God as the creator. And it is denying us to know our origin. And it is stealing a generation in the intellectual institutions of our society. I'll get to the evidence just a minute. Maybe you don't know. I'm passionate about this. So I'm tired of people who ought to know enough. Who've given who knows how many hours and years of their life to getting smarter. And they're still shoving this ignorance down the throat of our young adults in our intellectual institutions. They've kidnapped 
higher education. And they guard it with bigotry and bullying. They are not open. Don't take my word for it. This last week, dailywire.com produced an article that is the story of a Yale computer scientist who recently, how recently? August of 2019, last month, just a few days ago, came out and said that evolution is a scientific impossibility. Scientific impossibility. Now, listen to me. This isn't evidence that is just now made known. It's, I'm just using it as one of the most recent illustrations. This has been around a long, long time. I'm going to quote again the article for the sake of conciseness and brevity. Renowned writer and Yale University professor David Gelertner has turned away from Charles Darwin's theory of evolution arguing it has too many holes and has aged out as a probable scientific theory. If you are like me, you didn't have a clue who David Gelertner was, you probably only know his name if you're in the computer world. He is the one who is credited with predicting the World Wide Web. Not to be confused with the politician who said he created it a few years ago. This guy actually knows his stuff. And Gelertner credits another scientist by the name of Stephen Meyer for, convin for convincing him in his recently released book in 2013 entitled Darwin's Doubt. Here's what he says about the book. Meyer doesn't only demolish Darwin, he defends a replacement theory, intelligent design. Meyer and other proponents of intelligent design are the dispassionate intellectuals making orderly scientific arguments. Some intelligent design haters have shown themselves willing to use any argument, fair or not, true or not, ad hominem or not, to keep this dangerous idea locked in a box forever. They remind us of the extent to which Darwinism is no longer just a scientific theory, but the basis of a world view and an emergency replacement religion for many troubled souls who needs one. One scholar said of Charles Darwin, all Charles Darwin did was to apply his bigotry to create a scientific theory so he could dismiss God. And what he did in the meantime, if you look at his life, was he stripped himself of all meaning and purpose and died a miserable individual. Scientific data demands that to believe evolution, one must disregard real science altogether and believe in the impossible because absolutely no scientific evidence to build evolution's argument on exists. Even Gelertner says this, that the one problem Charles Darwin always had, and this is the, the proposition that evolution shoves down humanity's gullet, is that there is no origin for species. Sure, he has a little bit of truth from science sprinkled in, but then he leaps into an area that it cannot be substantiated or supported. Evolution is important to discuss in Genesis 
because of the assumption as true that it holds today. That must be the way. There's actually two forms of evolution, naturalistic evolution, which basically these are people that use pure science. They, they may or may not believe in God, but they're not trying to merge it with God at all. Naturalistic evolution just uses a natural origin uh, to talk about the beginning of all things. There's also one called theistic evolution, and these are Christians that are trying to syncretize the scriptural record with evolutionary theory and science. I'll get to them in just a moment. Evolution is important for us to consider because of the damage that it has caused on biblical teaching. And I've already referenced the damage that it's caused on young, formidable minds by people who are given the stewardship to train those minds. John MacArthur, famous pastor, theologian, scholar, and author, author in California says that evolution is the single greatest lie perpetrated against Christianity. You say, why do we have to believe creation? Can't we just get to Jesus? There is no Jesus without God's creation account, friends. That's what I'm trying to say to you today. You dismiss Genesis, you don't get Jesus. He's not a genie that just pops out of the Bible when you revel in the New Testament a little bit. He is God. And that's what I propose to present to you today. Evolution denies that God is creator. It strips the glory of creation. And it strips the dignity and the value of people. Evolutionary theory was the foundational ideology driving the Third Reich of Germany under Hitler's regime. It was their rationale that substantiated the evil that they perpetrated against humanity in those days. Can you think of any other evils that evolutionary theory is the foundation for today, counted by the hundreds of thousands of millions of tens of millions of babies that are dying every day at the convenience of life? Theistic evolution, as I mentioned well ago, is a pseudo-Christian attempt. Now hear me, that that's my words, okay? I want you to understand where I stand on this. It's a pseudo-Christian attempt to syncretize the Bible, but I propose to you it is completely false because when you do what they do to the Scriptures in order to put the, uh, uh, evolution into their theology and remove creation or even to define creation by the evolutionary process, you strip the meaning of Genesis. And when you strip the text, you have nothing to build upon. The Bible doesn't say God started creating. It says God created. And then it says, and it was so. And then it says, and God looked at it and said, mm, that's good. That's what the Bible says, friends. Evolution is an ongoing process. Biblical creationism is complete. Evolution is likely celebrated as science's greatest achievement of the 20th century. But in actuality, and listen to me, I, I'm not dismissing the value of molecular biology. We greatly benefit from that field today. I'm not talking against science. I'm talking against bad science. It's actually a complete debacle and deception. 
because of the way it's been propagated. But this is not surprising because Romans 1, 21 to 23 tells us this, that when we fail to honor God, when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we begin to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator, our thinking becomes futile and our hearts become darkened against the truth of God. Evolution is one of the greatest illustrations of these three verses that has ever been propagated. So with these challenges before us, how can we proceed to trust in Jesus? I remind you that Genesis is a covenant history focusing on what the people of God need to know about God and about themselves. And Genesis introduces God as creator and he answers the deepest questions of life by faith in him. Listen to me, friends. A call to believe God's word is not a demand to reject science. Science and the Bible are not in conflict. Bad science. Bad scientists. Stupidity. That's what we are confronting here. Yes, that last word was more opinion than anything. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Believing the Bible and trusting in Jesus is not an issue of denying factual information. It is about embracing truth by faith. The Christian faith is not one of ignorance, but of divine revelation that, that illumines the mind, that affectionates the heart, that attunes the spirit and awakens the soul with eternal life by the Spirit of God. This is what it means to be made new in Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the living word incarnate, is our life revealed by the word of God in the Bible in Genesis. God reveals himself as the creator of all in order to show himself as the source of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And what I want to do in the next few moments, and I need to move quickly, but I want to provide from these verses five points of a biblical doctrine of creation from which we will build over the next several weeks. But I need you to understand, then what are we to believe? How is it that we process this? How do we approach the book of Genesis? Just take it at face value? Well, we approach approach it as we approach any of the scriptures, and I want us to see how we build a doctrine or our understanding of creation that will give us a foundation to trust in God and to look forward to the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. The first point that I will give to you is this, that Genesis begins by introducing God who alone was present in the beginning. Look at this, in the beginning, God. Now, we have a definite article in the English Bible here, but that definite article is not present in the original language with which it was built. The essence of what Moses says is this, well, you know, I, I need to start somewhere here, and if I'm going to actually get this thing written, I need to start somewhere. So here's where I'm going to start. God. 
He is not telling us that there was a start and God happened to be present. He's pointing to God and he's saying, he is the one that begins all things. He is the origin. He is the one who is eternally existent from all eternity past and shall be forevermore. The phrase is, in beginning, God, it points to God as the beginning. It is God who is the origin of all things as the one who is eternally existent, as the one who is completely independent of and not within his own creation. God is the beginning of and the end for which all things were created. He is the end that is revealed from beginnings. And so according to the Bible, God is the defining reality of all things, the beginning and the end for which all things exist. Revelation chapter 21, I told you I'd get there. He is the alpha, he is the omega, the beginning and the end. This is the first point that we must see for biblical doctrine of creation. The second point is it says that God is Elohim. That's the name for God that is used in the creation narrative. This is a title of majesty and glory. It's not a common familiar title, but when Elohim is used for God, it denotes his transcendence, his bigness, his otherness, his removedness, his so far beyond us you cannot comprehend us. When the Bible says his thoughts are not our thoughts. Those are the thoughts of Elohim. When it says his ways are not our ways, those are the ways of Elohim. And it is Elohim who is here, who is the beginning. And it extols this transcendence. It extols the power of his word as the ruler of all things and of the universe. And so God who is the beginning of all and worthy of all worship because he rules all is Elohim. We need to understand how Moses is writing and speaking of God so that we can understand the nature and the character of God. We need to hold that. The third point is that God is the origin and the source of all. It tells us God created the heavens and the earth. That word for created here reminds us that the activity that's taking place in Genesis 1 is not common to any other being, any other nature, any other activity, but God and God alone. The Elohim who is present and who is the origin of all is doing a work that is unique and only to him. That's what this word is associated with. This word is never used with anyone other than God in the scriptures and what is taking place. What happens in Genesis can only happen because Elohim wills it. Unique distinct. This is not create as we think. Let's go down to the hardware store. Let's get some materials and supplies. Let's bring them together and let's put it together and form or create as we might say. No, what this word says is that it originated. It tells us that the doctrine of creation is creatio ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. And it's so interesting how we can produce so much nothing in our life, right? Like mindless chatter, like we can kill time like nobody's business, vegging out and binge watching on Netflix or or Prime. And we, we can be so adept at creating nothing. But when Genesis begins to tell us that God created out of nothing, it is so far beyond our comprehension, we can't even imagine nothing. But the Bible tells us that there was nothing Absolutely nothing until God uttered his first words. And he originates 
and then he forms. This is the way Elohim creates. He is the origin of the raw material and the shaper of the finished product. There was nothing until he uttered, but when he did, the Bible says God spoke and all things of space and of matter and in a few verses, time came into being. Remember this, friends, before God, there was not, because God has always been. The fourth point is that God was actively present, working in creation. This is critical for us, friends, especially for those who want to say that God is distant, removed, or absent. He formed the heavens and the earth. He didn't contract it out. He completed it himself. And the Bible tells us that the earth was formless and void. Tohu wa bohu. Those two words give us the abyss of what was present when God collected by his first speaking and formed the natural substances with which he would create. There was no shape. There was no system. There was no structure. There was no organization. There was no operation. There was no defined meaning to the heavens and the earth at this point there was no boundary purpose that could be established in all this it had just become present because of God but one potent truth should not be missed that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep listen to me when nothing was God was and when he spoke and the raw materials were laid out it's because he put them there by his word And the Bible tells us God is not absent. God is not distant. God is not unconcerned. God is not disconnected. In the creation account, the master craftsman is brooding over his canvas. The artisan extraordinaire is preparing the masterpiece that he is about to create. This God is in love. This God is about to Formed from his own nature and his own being, that which will bring him glory that is worthy of his name. He is actively involved. He is present in every way, working. Friends, I want you to know that if God's not present in creation, don't give one ounce of intellect to bothering with that theory. God was there. Genesis says it was. He was there before it was there. But when it got there, it was because he was there. And when it got there, he was still there, hovering and preparing for the work that he would do. In creation, God is actively present and working. The fifth point of our doctrine of creation is creation is completed by the end of Genesis 1. In the Bible, I've already said it, I'll be quick. God created, God completed, God pronounced. It is good. It's done. It's not ongoing. The biblical account of creation is one of completion. It's not ongoing. It's not outstanding with incompletions. It's not an evolving process. It's done. From the beginning of all to the end, God is the creator. Listen, friends, creation makes sense. Get it? It makes See what I did there? They didn't think it was funny either. We were created for God. And by faith, we are recreated in Jesus to live eternally with him. Martin, Luther, or Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The only way to understand yourself or your life is to start with God. 
Life loses all lasting value when God is denied as creator. But when we believe God as creator, a divine purpose points us to a sovereign redeemer in all. Friends, in the end, scientific evidence is not the issue. But it is not lacking to inform us. Do not believe that. The issue is one of faith. Will you believe in God and what he has said? To deny the God of creation is to reject the God of salvation. Elohim is Yahweh who comes in the person of Jesus Christ and saves. Won't you hear his word today and believe? Let's pray.